0: This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC, News
1: Talk 1080, and WTIC.com.
0: Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning for what is now our 43rd consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and our battle against it. It is a battle. And as I've said many times before, in any battle, you play defense and offense. Right now, we've been in the defensive stage, gradually getting into the offense. So let's look at the score, basically. We have over 437,000 Americans dead from the COVID-19 virus. Yesterday alone, there were 3,600 deaths in this country. But here's what we're starting to see, and here's where the hope, here's where some of that offense is coming up. 27.8 million people have received one or both vaccinations. More than 5 million Americans now are fully vaccinated, and we're vaccinating people at a rate of 1.2 million per day. Now, it's still a far cry from where we need to get to be, but it's progress that we're gradually making, and it's key for us in this battle. One bright spot is Connecticut. Our positivity rate for the last seven days is 4.2 percent. That's the lowest it's been since early November. Yes, right? yesterday, it was only 3.6 percent. So we're doing something right, and what's right is that's the defense, right? Fewer people are getting infected, and that's wearing masks, social distancing, washing hands, not traveling unnecessarily. In fact, we're one of only seven states that also has the highest distribution of vaccine and that was brought out by Andy Slavitt at the in his press conference at the White House. So Connecticut is moving in the right direction. Here, here's something that bothers me, and that is uh, so: our women's basketball team, the University of Connecticut basketball team, right? Um, World renowned, great team. You can't go to a game, right? You go to Gamble Arena. There's nobody there. And those are the things, those are the things we have voluntarily participated in to keep those numbers down, to keep our state safe. Yet, they traveled to Arkansas this week to play in front of a packed crowd of 4,200 people in an arena in Arkansas. What are other states not getting? What are they not understanding about this virus and about what they should be doing? It is basic. Masks, wash hands, social distance. Right now in Connecticut, I wanna make sure everybody is clear on who qualifies for the vaccine. Healthcare workers, nursing home residents, first responders, and with that essential personnel, and residents over the age of 75. Soon, within the next several weeks, It will open up to all residents over the age of 65. But there are several limiting factors here. Among them is supply of vaccine. And we're going to talk about that in the next segment is how are we getting around that? What do we know about this new vaccine from Johnson & Johnson that's out there? But when we talk about the defense and using masks, there are a lot of there's a lot of new information, for example, recommending that you wear two masks, right? So the bigger filter you could put between yourself and others, the better it is. One way you'll know if your mask is not sufficient is hold it up to the light. If you could see light through that mask or what you're using as a mask, it's not sufficient, so a lot of people trying to use bandanas or gaiters. If you could hold it up and see through it. It's not appropriate. And I think. At least for what I say, it's rare that I see somebody out in public not wearing a mask. Um, I have to say, I, I can't remember the last time I saw that. Um, and sometimes it, it might be in error uh, being forgetful. But other than that, I've not seen people out there. Uh, at least in Connecticut, making some bizarre political statement by not wearing a mask. Now, one of our challenges are the variants, and we're hearing about variants, the South African variant, the UK variant. These variants are here. The RNA viruses, of which COVID-19 is one, are well known for being able to mutate quickly so it's like they're camouflaging themselves to some degree and changing so that we can identify them and they can cause more harm. The way it does it is by letting it run loose. So if everyone wore a mask, ideally, if everyone wore a mask for several weeks, the virus, no matter what variant it is, would have nowhere to go and die. When people don't practice the basics of mask-wearing, washing hands, and social distancing, the virus runs free and can change itself as much as it can, as much as it wants. And with that, we go back to, if people will remember, the recommendations of some people that We just let the virus run free. Remember that? You'll reach herd immunity if you let the virus run loose. Well, had we done that, we would have more mutations to try to deal with and ineffective vaccines. Our good fortune is that we have developed vaccines quickly from a platform that was already underway. So these vaccines have been well thought out and well studied so that we could use them effectively. The principal vaccine out there right now are the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Those are the only two that have been approved so far. Those vaccines require two injections, one, uh, the Pfizer vaccine three weeks after the first one. The Moderna vaccine, four weeks after the first one. Now, I want to make a very clear point. There's something we do know. So we, one of the things that has eluded us is being honest about what we know and what we don't know. And as we know things, we need to make them more available to the public. So what we have found out is that those numbers of three weeks and four weeks are not hard numbers. So what we know now is that second vaccine can be given up to six weeks after the first vaccine and still have the same effectiveness. So it's it's important for people not to be nervous about, oh, my appointment is five weeks after my first injection. So With that, we are starting to learn more and more about this. And I'm happy to see that the nation's experts are also admitting what we don't know about the virus, such as how long does this immunity you get from the vaccine last? We believe it'll last at least a year. It may be longer, may be shorter. We're learning as we move through this. Before we take a short break, I want to make sure everybody knows that I will take questions in this second segment coming up. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842, 1-800-966-9842. Also, I want to go over the questions that came up during the week, specifically on the topic of ivermectin, um, an antiparasitic drug that has been purported to work As a treatment for COVID-19, those questions came in to me on info at AlessiMD.com. And in the second half of our program, my guest today is going to be Dr. David Henderson. He's Associate Professor of Family Medicine, Chair of the Department of Family Medicine, and Associate Dean of Multicultural and Community Affairs at the University of Connecticut. And he's going to talk to us a, a little bit about the vaccine and how we reach minority communities, and also we're going to talk to him about the future of medical education because when we move forward from this, we know we have to make changes in how we distribute health care in this country, and a lot is going to depend on the education of physicians. We're going to take a break and be back with you shortly. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, And uh, as I mentioned before, I've gotten uh, several uh, questions about the use of a drug called ivermectin. Uh, Ivermectin uh, is an anti parasitic drug um, that's approved by the Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of onchocerciasis as well as strongaloidiasis. Those are basically tapeworms, so parasites. And I've used this drug uh, in Haiti, uh, primarily in children who have had uh, tapeworms. So it's it's fairly commonly used, fairly benign medication. And there has been a school of thought that ivermectin may be a treatment for COVID-19 based on some of its anti-inflammatory and antiviral properties. And that among those physicians... Uh, Supporting that is a Dr. Pierre Corey um, at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, Dr. Corey is legit from everything I can tell, uh, well-educated and well-intentioned. He's on the front line treating people with COVID. He's a critical care specialist. So the NIH has come out with their statement, and basically they're saying that there's not sufficient data to recommend either for or against the use of ivermectin to treat COVID-19. So we don't have the results from a well-conducted trial to say, this is the way to go. Kind of like where we were with hydroxychloroquine. When we finally did studies, and it's not hard to do these studies because so many people have COVID-19, we found that it wasn't helpful But in ivermectin, those studies are ongoing. And how does it work? Well, it inhibits the important, um, and it's called an important alpha-beta-1 nuclear transport protein. Basically, this is the way, it's a key way for the virus to attach to cells and transport its material into the cell. It's how it gets into the cell. So if you could inhibit that, ideally, you then have a situation where the the virus can't spread within your body. Now, it's been shown to do this and inhibit replication of SARS-CoV-2 in cell culture. But here's where the problem is. What they've found is to take what you've seen in a test tube and replicate that in vitro, in a human being, you would have to take doses a hundred times higher than what's been approved for human use before this. So that's where the rub comes in is, although it's benign in the recommended dose, we don't know enough about it in the higher dose. So with that, I think it's one of those things that we don't know about, but we're not saying this, we're not trying to poo-poo this and say, it's not going to work. Here's what we do, though. We do know that monoclonal antibodies do work. Remember this? The former president got this, um, and it was an antibody. These are antibodies made in the lab that you can give someone within the first 10 days of infection, and it attacks the virus from spreading. So it's an effective treatment. Here's what's happened is that we've got a a bunch of this stuff sitting around. And what we're finding is that it's not being used. Why? Because so many, you have to have an IV infusion of it. It's a one-time intravenous infusion of the monoclonal antibodies. It works for COVID-19. We don't know that it works for the variants. But for the most common COVID-19 we have those antibodies they're made by Regeneron but they're going unused and the reason is because we we don't have a lot of professionals to administer it everybody is working so hard in states where there are where there's high influx of COVID-19 we think that's one of the problems in Connecticut there is there are monoclonal antibodies so if you test positive, if you are starting to develop early symptoms of COVID-19, you should be in touch with your doctor because this may be a key treatment to avoid you from getting very sick, requiring hospitalization. Again, these are, these are drugs given before you get to the hospital, before you get to the point where you are short of breath and having a hard time breathing. So it's important to know that those are available and we should be using them. Let's talk a little bit about the vaccines. The J&J vaccine, you're hearing a lot of darn numbers, okay? 66% effective worldwide. In the United States, it's 72% effective. It's confusing, right? It's confusing to everybody when, when you compare it to Moderna and Pfizer, which were 95% effective. Here's what the bottom line is. And our listeners who listen to me regularly know that I I like to get to the bottom. I want to simplify things. So here's the simple line you need to know. Whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, AstraZeneca, or Novavax, all have been proven to be 100% effective in keeping you alive. That's it. That's the bottom line. They all have had no one die who has gotten their vaccine and developed COVID-19. So we know that 5% of people who get the Pfizer or Moderna will get COVID-19. But again, mild symptoms don't have to be hospitalized, don't die. Johnson & Johnson, I think what they're saying here is that 28% of people may get some symptoms, but again, don't go to the hospital and don't die. Why are their numbers lower? One of the reasons is probably because their trials, remember you have to get 30,000 people in it, were done later when we had more variants of COVID-19 and more cases. So there may have been some bias against the J&J vaccine when we look at those initial numbers. But we're also looking at numbers that say the longer you have it in your body, the more of a defense you build up with the Johnson & Johnson. And, And it's important to know it's a single dose. It's going to make it easy to administer. Also, Johnson & Johnson is known for their ability to produce large amounts of vaccine quickly as a company. So they are going to be able to produce a lot more of this. Their virus works a little bit differently. Their vaccine works a little bit differently against the virus. It uses uh, what we call an adenovirus vehicle, which is kind of like a Trojan horse. It's not a real virus, but it looks like a virus. And it attaches to the same spike protein that the other vaccines attach to. It doesn't go in your cells. It doesn't make you sick. It can't give you the disease. But it will attack that spike protein so that the virus can't attach to your healthy cells. And that's the same way AstraZeneca and Novavax will be working. AstraZeneca and Novavax are still, uh, Novavax is being used in the United Kingdom. Um, They have not applied for emergency use authorization yet. The next key plan is going to be how we're going to distribute this medication, these vaccines. And in Connecticut, we've already put together a plan. The plan is to have many current and formerly active healthcare professionals unite. My colleagues who are nurses, retired doctors, retired pharmacists. Healthcare technicians who are certified to give injections are massing together right now through the Department of Public Health. And there will be more and more mass vaccination sites. One is opening up in eastern Connecticut, I understand, at the Foxwoods Casino. Here in Hartford, the Dunkin' Donuts ballpark will be a mass vaccination site. Uh, My daughter, Stephanie, will be working with the Department of Public Health in working with them. She has a master's degree in public health, and she will be a vaccinator. As many listeners to this program may know, uh, I am a volunteer auxiliarist with the United States Coast Guard, and they contacted me this week uh, for deployment. And what we are doing is putting together teams of five vaccinators, and we will be asked to go to some area of the country to support FEMA in supporting these mass vaccination sites. I'm looking forward to it, and the reason I'm looking forward to it is because everyone who tells me that they've participated in these vaccination sites as a vaccinator, come away with a tremendous feeling of satisfaction. It's why we went into this business. It's why we went into medicine, nurses, doctors, pharmacists. We went in there to help people. And this is a direct way of saving lives. And that's what we really want to do. So I ask um, those listening who may be retired. We could be retired many years. Don't be afraid. Sign up, contact the Department of Public Health, contact your former hospital where you used to work. Um, I know Backus Hospital in Eastern Connecticut sent out an email looking for people. So we're amassing now because when these vaccines become available, we've got to get them in people's arms. Next up, we're going to be chatting with my guest, Dr. David Henderson from the University of Connecticut. We're going to be talking about uh, distribution of vaccines, but also Really, the history and the future of medical education in America. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to have you here for the second half of our program. My guest this morning is Dr. David Henderson. He is an associate professor of family medicine and chair of the Department of Family Medicine, at the University of Connecticut. He's also the Associate Dean for Multicultural and Community Affairs at the University of Connecticut. By full disclosure, Dr. David Henderson was my family physician until he decided to make the leap to full-time faculty back in 2003. Dave, I I can't believe it's been 18 years now that you're at the University of Connecticut.
1: Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Tony, thank you. Um, That does seem like a long time, but it doesn't
0: Feel Um, that long at all? Uh, Well, you've certainly uh, at least remained in Connecticut and been an asset. Um, But I wanted to touch, continuing with my discussion about vaccination and and your role as associate dean of multicultural and community affairs. uh, One of the big issues has been vaccine hesitancy, um, Mm -hmm. and uh, among minority populations um, specifically, but. Uh, in general, and what have you learned in working with the community? How are we going to get around that hesitancy?
1: Well, I think that the issue with vaccination is multifaceted um, and has uh, some um, sort of interpersonal behavioral components, which um, I I think uh, the hesitancy is a major element uh, there. But um, there are also some structural issues as well. And many of these issues we actually saw around testing. Um, when testing was first uh, rolled out, um, uh, it was already clear that, um, um, that people of color were being hospitalized and dying from COVID at a higher rate um, than, um, that, than the majority population. Uh, yet they were underrepresented in testing, and it had everything to do with the way of testing uh, was orchestrated. Um, I mean, if you remember, m- most of the testing sites uh, were drive-up. Um, if you uh, didn't have a car, um, then uh, those testing sites really were not accessible to you. Um, and most of them tended not to be um, in, um, in inner-city neighborhoods or in rural areas. Um, they were often sponsored by, um, uh, by healthcare facilities. And so if you live in an area uh, uh, that has a healthcare shortage, uh, again, your access to testing uh, was very limited. Um, Right now, we see people of color underrepresented in vaccinations. I I read something the other day about Texas uh, as an example. um, uh, I think 15% of Latinos, um, uh, Latinos represent 15% of the population that's been vaccinated, uh, yet, um, they are 40% of the population of the state. Uh, they're disproportionately represented uh, in people who are hospitalized and who die from COVID. Um, and, again, I think it's the same sort of structural issues. Um, um, the, place, the populations that are being vaccinated first, uh, i.e., healthcare workers um, in, in many states, um, a, lot of these, a lot of these populations um, have underrepresentation uh, of minorities uh, to begin with. Um, and even in sites where vaccination has been expanded, it, the sites are many of the same sites that uh, offered testing before. Uh, and so that infrastructure is actually being reused. Um, and uh, community-based vaccination is just getting, uh, just starting to get off the ground uh, in many places. Um, and so, um, it's actually very challenging. As an example, um, my sister is a school teacher in Chicago um, and um, she is eligible to be vaccinated, uh, but she has been unable to schedule an appointment because every time she logs on to um, the website, which is the only way you can uh, schedule an appointment, it crashes. I um, mean, so there, there are a lot of impediments um, to uh, being, back, being vaccinated in addition to the reluctance that. Um, is present in um, in some populations due to um, just sort of a history of uh, mistrust with the healthcare system. Um, uh, um, and a lot of that is based on an uh, individual's personal experience, not the things that happened uh, 40 or 50 years ago.
0: Are we going to get around it?
1: Hopefully. Um, I okay. think there are many efforts by the um, uh, the system writ large, and individuals in particular. Um, I heard an interview with um, an ER doctor, I think she was in Texas as well, um, um, who was African-American and said that she was skeptic- skeptical about getting uh, the vaccination, uh, but it, uh, and she went ahead and got it anyway because she recognized that it was um, the right thing to do. Um, and she has um, made it uh, a mission um, to try to get um, other folks uh, in the hospital, um, to um, some of the nurses, um, some of the people who say work in housekeeping or in dietary um, to, um, to, to be vaccinated as well. I mean, so she is using herself uh, as an example um, and, um, and has become an ambassador in her own sphere. I think that um, sort of community outreach, uh, working with um, our community organizations, um, who have relationships um, with, uh, with folks in the community who have credibility. Um, I mean, I think efforts such as those should overcome the um, sort of current reluctance to be vaccinated, which is just, uh, again, I, I think just based on mistrust of the system.
0: Well, I'm counting on you, Dave. I mean, uh, you are that person who, ha- well, I mean, you've spent a lot of years working in the Hartford area and in underserved areas, and there are a lot of people that look to you um, for good advice, as we do. So I'm hoping you're going to be successful I- in this adventure. Uh, but I, I want to get to medical education. Uh, one of the things we've been talking about in this program is, you know, in the future, we need a better health care delivery system and a big part of that is gonna be training physicians. And that's evolved a great deal, probably since you and I went to medical school. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how we're training physicians and, and maybe touch on why we still have a shortage?
1: Oh, um, sure. Um, this is actually an exciting time to be um, in, um, in medical school, certainly to be teaching in medical school. Um, because there is uh, a lot of innovation, and, uh, and we're actually starting to see a lot of change. Um, when um, you and I, um, since we're of the same vintage, went to medical school, um, we spent the day um, in some lecture hall um, or, or, or some series of lecture halls uh, listening to people um, talk to us about this, that, and the other thing. Uh, it's very passive learning. Um, uh, the learners today are different. Um, and the way that we approach them um, is different as well. I mean, UConn became the first school in the country uh, to get rid of lectures. We haven't had a single lecture um, since probably May of 2016, because in August 2016, we unrolled a new curriculum, um, and that curriculum uh, was developed um, by folks at the school, uh, but I think uh, influenced by a national group um, that we're part of. The AMA um, has uh, a consortium of medical schools across the country. Um, it's called the ACE Consortium. ACE stands for Accelerating um, Change in Education. And the goal is to foster uh, curricular uh, innovation. And so in our curricular reform process, we got rid of lectures, we moved to um, a system of, uh, of teaching and learning uh, that is um, more learner-focused um, and, and based on uh, team-based learning uh, as its primary um, sort of format. Um, and it's um, te- uh, team-based learning, or TBL, is organized on the flipped classroom concept. So students are given um, uh, information um, to, um, uh, to go over uh, to hopefully master. Uh, Before they come to class, Uh, they come to class, they take a short quiz individually, um, which is a self-assessment to um, basically um, see how well uh, they understand the material. Uh, Then they take that same um, uh, quiz as a group um, of eight to ten students. Um, And um, so if there are things that uh, they didn't understand walking in the door, um, um, there's peer-to-peer teaching. Um, then the actual sort of class begins, um, and uh, if there are concepts that still need uh, some elaboration or explanation, uh, there are faculty there um, to do that, um, um, but most of the time in class, uh, is spent actually using the information, um, so students are given application exercises, uh, which are uh, patient cases um, that they go over and actually apply um, the information and um, and the knowledge that they have just learned, um, and, and so it, it's much more participatory uh, than um, than was the case when we were in medical school. Um, there is another course that was created, which is called uh, Vital. Um, we have we go crazy with acronyms, and I won't bother to tell you what Vital stands for.
0: Thanks,
1: but um, <laughs> it's... Um, It's our population health course. Um, It's sort of based on um, an old um, um, health law and ethics course, Um, but it adds a lot of elements of population health, and um, it actually includes uh, emerging issues, which are usually based on current events. Um, And so uh, issues like bias in health care, and there is um, a one week is being spent on, um, on the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, on the, um, part of it is on the, um, sort of biology of the b- vaccine, uh, but also going into the distribution, um, and access, which we were actually just, um, just talking about. Um, so topical things like that are included. And it's an effort to try to help students understand, uh, how healthcare is delivered. Um, also one of the things that the AMA ACE Consortium has promulgated is what they're calling a third science. There's sort of basic science, clinical science, and um, and the third science is health system science. And health system science is or, is organized around um, uh, the study and understanding of how care is actually delivered, um, how health professionals uh, sort of work together um, to deliver care, and how the system uh, impacts uh, patient health and well-being. Um, and the um, the competencies that are um, associated with this um, include population health uh, with a specific uh, emphasis on um, health equity and social determinants, um, 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 health economics, um, interpersonal skills, um, informatics, um, etc. cetera. Um, and all of this is designed to uh, achieve what's known as a triple aim, uh, which is um, one, improving um, patient's experience of the care they receive, uh, improving uh, population health, and the third is uh, reducing cost. The um, um, family medicine has added a fourth aim, uh, which is improving um, provider satisfaction and well-being. Uh, but this is actually sort of a new sort of prism um, um, through which to, um, to look at the work that we all do. Uh, and this is uh, this is it, it's becoming an integral part of um, of the educational landscape.
0: David, I've i found it very interesting. I had an opportunity to participate in one of these lectures as an expert uh, in health and head injury, and it was phenomenal mm-hmm. because it was the classroom was in the round, and I'm in the center, um, fielding questions and using real world examples um, uh, for the uh, students. So. Uh, It is amazing. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to get back. Uh, We're chatting with my guest, Dr. David Henderson from the University of Connecticut. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about how we're addressing the cost of medical school and the presence of minorities in women and medical school itself. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds for our final segment. My guest today is Dr. David Henderson, who is the Associate Dean of Multicultural and Community Affairs and Chair of the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Connecticut. Uh, David, when we talk about medical school, um, one of the first things that comes to mind, when, when you ask students who, who are in pre-med, you know, or doing biology, and you say, you're gonna to go to medical school, and, and then you just make a face. And, and a lot of it is dedication to the time element, but the other is the cost. And how are we going to address that, especially with respect to minorities and women and getting more minorities involved in uh, medicine and going into practice?
1: No, I think that is a really um, important issue. I mean, I, I think sort of cost is an impediment. The way the uh, the way the sort of um, primary and secondary um, education is set up is also an impediment as well. But I mean, just with regard to cost, um, I mean, I think the um, the average medical school debt uh, now is about two hundred sixteen thousand um, dollars um, across the country, and that's just for medical school. Um, I mean, as a comparison, back in the late seventies, nineteen seventy-eight, seventy-nine, it was around Fifty-three thousand um, dollars, and the total average debt uh, for medical um, um, graduates, including their um, uh, undergraduate uh, or college debt, um, is about um, two hundred forty-two thousand uh, dollars. Because the average um, sort of college debt is about thirty-two, and so there are a lot of people who are graduating with a um, with a significant amount of debt because. Um, Two hundred forty thousand dollars in change um, is about a starter house um, in most states, uh, and um, and if probably about eighty um, plus percent of students who graduate have some educational debt, um, um, and so that's a lot of debt um, uh, distributed among um, a lot of uh, a lot of individuals. Um, and that, I think, um, is a barrier um, to some. Um, I mean, right now, um, sort of tuition uh, costs have gone up um, significantly um, since we were in medical school. Um, the Yukon's um, uh, tuition um, is about $40,000. Um, and that's probably that's fairly average for um, the um, Northeast, um, maybe actually. Um, a little bit below average, uh, but if you go uh, if you go to a private school, um, your tuition is going to be about uh, sixty thousand dollars. And that sort of tuition uh, number doesn't include uh, any of the other um, uh, aspects of cost to attendance, uh, such as living expenses, health insurance, uh, and so forth. And so once you add those in, um, the um, forty thousand uh, dollar say uh, price tag for an in-state student. Um, uh, can um, go up um, as much as seventy thousand dollars, which again is a um, which is a lot of money. Um, there are um, some students. I mean, if, uh, if eighty-five or eighty-eighty-five uh, percent graduate with debt, I mean, then um, there are significant number of students who uh, graduate with no debt at all. Um, they come from uh, families that are affluent enough to. Um, to be able to cover uh, their educational costs. Um, and so I think the cost is, um, is one impediment. It also, I think, has an impact on the disciplines that, um, that students ultimately choose. Um, and if you're looking at a big mountain of debt, um, then you are more likely to um, want to pursue a discipline um, that will provide Um, a significant um, level of income uh, to manage that debt, although studies have shown that um, that really doesn't matter, but it's hard to convince um, uh, someone who's looking at um, uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, in debt that um, whether they make $250,000 a year or $450,000 a year, they can still maintain a certain sort of lifestyle. Also- but dave it, it,
0: it, that 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 leads to this disproportionate allotment of physicians around the country and and you know sadly we don't have a lot of time but it can you can you give us some idea probably in the next minute okay <laughs> not too much pressure how are we going to address the disproportionate allocation of physicians around the country when young people are faced with this amount of debt?
1: I think we need to fix the education system. Um, and I think we need to start very early. Um, I think we need to, uh, provide better educational opportunities for, um, um, poor, uh, poor people in urban areas, um, um, who tend to be, um, uh, underrepresented minorities. Um, and we need to provide better opportunities for people in rural areas, uh, to become educated. We need to lower access to, uh, a college education, um, uh, I mean, as uh, um, because the um, the rate of college graduation among African-Americans um, is about, I think, about just under 20 um, um, uh, yep. percent. But um, women um, significantly outnumber men in that number. Um, in fact, one um, statistic um, is that um, from 1978 to 2015, uh, the rate of um, enrollment uh, markedly increased uh, for women in general. Um, and, and enrollment in medical school also increased for all all underrepresented groups except for black men. Black men actually, um, those numbers actually went down. Um, and so I think there is a yep. lot of work to do, but that work, I, I think, in order for us to be successful, uh, really needs to be done within the educational system.
0: Dave, thank you for your time, as always, and thanks for all the good work you do at the University of Connecticut.
1: Tony, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you.
0: And thanks to great. Joey Burgoyne, who's been on the board today. Many thanks to our, our uh, studio producer, and uh, it's great to have him along. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy.